You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LAFC. This is week eight, covering commandments three and nine and four and ten. Good morning. Well, you made it to the end of the law. I don't know if this is relieving or bittersweet for you, but I hope and pray that your heart has been stirred and your thinking has been conformed, even if it's just one step closer to the way that God thinks. And we are going out with a bang today. These last four commandments leave no stone unturned. So consider yourself warned, I'll be pushing all of your buttons. And believe me when I say that my buttons are being pushed as well, and we're in preparation. But that's what the Word of God does. Hebrews 4.12 says it pierces down into the deepest places of our being, revealing the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. If it were us, up to us, I think we would choose laparoscopic sanctification, right? Less invasive, less painful. But this cancerous sin has spread into every part of our being. We are in need of major surgery, and this is a matter of life and death. The surgery is painful, and it is costly, but oh, the life on the other side. And there has never been a more steady, trustworthy hand holding the scalpel. The cost may still be high, but there's no risk. He's restoring us into the people he's created us to be in the first place, wholly transformed. And this is the abundant and flourishing life, to know and enjoy God and to be renewed in his image. And so I've been praying that the Spirit would illuminate our sin. Sounds kind of weird. But in seeing the ugliness of our sin, it makes the sufficiency of Christ that much greater. And what a glory it is to delight in our Savior and to trust his continuing work in our lives. So are you ready? Let's jump in. Commandment number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. All right, so how many of you were taught this means don't swear using God's name? Okay, great, just about everybody, me too. Um, so this isn't completely wrong. The third commandment is concerned with our speech, but it's much more expansive than just swearing. And we get to the heart of this commandment by a proper understanding of the concept of name. So yes, a name is an identifying title or a label, but it also carries the idea of reputation or character. Did you see that in your homework? In fact, everywhere that you see the name of the Lord in Scripture, you could mentally substitute the character of the Lord because that's what it means. Let me show you an example. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name or character of the Lord our God. And the idea of character or reputation applies to us too. Proverbs 22.1 says a good name or reputation is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. Now here's the next layer. We can also represent others by taking on their name. And you know this because it happens naturally in families. So whether it's your own kids or your parents, there is an association that comes with your family name. And perhaps the clearest example is when you have a chain of siblings growing up in the same school, 
What end of the deal did you get on that one? Right? So the first one sets the tone, and then the reputation of your family name precedes everybody else that follows, for better or for worse. So when God says, do not misuse my name, what's he saying? He's saying, I have set my name upon you. Do not misrepresent my character. The third commandment forbids us from speaking careless words about or in representation of God. So what might this look like in real life? I have two ideas for you to consider. The first is integrity of speech. Do you do what you say? I work in the, car de- uh, the service department of a car dealership, and one of my unofficial jobs is tracking down my coworkers who have to pay their service bills. And if I had a dollar for every time someone says, oh, okay, I'll pay that today, and then they don't, I'd have quite the savings fund. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but the scriptures tell us, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Be people whose speech is trustworthy, because we represent the one who always follows through on his word. And secondly, do you practice what you preach? Do you say attending church is important, but then you decide to go based on how much sleep you got the night before? Do you demand that your kids or your students apologize to you, but then you refuse to apologize to them when you mess up? We bear God's name well when our words and our lives are consistent with his righteousness. Another way this could look is name dropping. Do you speak of God to suit your own interests? Do you accredit your own decisions as direction from God? What about the phrases like, God told me, or I'm feeling called to? Do you use those genuinely? Or what about the response, I need to pray about it to get out of an awkward conversation? Our words matter because we bear the name and the reputation of Christ. Commandment number nine carries the same weight of integrity of speech. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So bearing false witness is to smear another's name, their character or their reputation, in the dirt. So if commandments 6, 7, and 8 are don't take your neighbor's life, wife, and stuff, but look out for them, then commandment number 9 is don't take your neighbor's good name, but look out for it. Now the immediate context of this commandment is literally bearing witness in the justice system. So in your homework, you looked at Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. No one can be condemned on the basis of one witness. How many did they need? Two or three. And remember, we're not just talking about a parking ticket. These witnesses literally have the power to send someone to their death. God built accountability into this system. Both the accused and the accuser are subject to God's righteous standard. So if the accuser is found to be lying, then he receives the punishment he's trying to get the other guy to have. Life for life, eye for eye, you shall have no pity. Now, Gandhi is on record for saying an eye for an eye will only make the whole world blind. But in Deuteronomy, God is not talking about personal revenge. God is teaching his people that true justice must be rooted in righteousness 
and truth. Noah Webster defines justice as this. The virtue which consists in giving to everyone what is his due, practical conformity to the laws and to principles of rectitude, which means righteousness, in the dealings of men with each other. God has set forth his righteous standard and true justice will conform to that, benefiting the obedient and punishing the wicked. The Lord hates the perversion of justice because it is a gross distortion to his righteous rule. He shows no partiality and accepts no bribe. Now you might be called to testify in court at some point, but let's bring this down to everyday life. How do you feel when someone misrepresents your character? I'm gonna guess it's a pretty universal response. I think few things send us from zero to 60 like someone misrepresenting us. We hate to be falsely accused. I've had to talk my kids down so many times after school because they got lumped into a group consequence and they weren't disobedient in the first place. So that's a story for another day. But for the sake of the ninth commandment, I want you to transfer that thought. Do you potentially make others feel that way for how you misrepresent their character? This is called slander. Do you malign others for your own gain? And it can be sneaky. Sometimes it looks like gossip. It might be a verbal rant online. But regardless, slander speaks accusations against another's character to make yourself look better or to get revenge. And you know what's even sneakier? The sin of silence. Maybe you're not even the one slandering, but what do you do when you hear it? Do you confront the lie with truth or do you just keep quiet because you don't want to be the next one in the crosshairs? Sisters, do not bear false witness. Be people whose speech is truthful because we represent the one who cannot lie. And in doing so, then we love our neighbors as ourselves. But what about when the accusation is true? The heart of the ninth commandment presses in even further. It's not just about avoiding falsehood, but also that we preserve the reputation of others as much as it depends on us. Do you speak honorably of others? Do you assume the best and extend grace for their weaknesses? Do you join in when a group is airing all their grievances about someone? Could you say to someone's face what you said or typed behind their back? This is so hard. But God calls us to be people who honor one another above ourselves. The only way to successfully do that, especially when someone is in the wrong, is in the power of the gospel. There's nothing else I have to offer you. There's no way I'm going to preserve someone's reputation that sinned against me except by remembering the offense of my sin against God. Our sinful nature really levels the playing field. No matter how good you may be feeling compared to someone else, unfortunately, that's not the standard. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And it's only in view of God's mercy and grace towards me that I can respond humbly towards another in their sin. 1 Peter 2 
says that if we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we will put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Instead, we will crave the pure spiritual nourishment of God and grow up in our salvation. Sometimes, silence can be wisdom here. Do not join with the wicked, for even the truth can be spoken maliciously. Outdo one another in showing honor. And on to our final set of commandments. Number four reads, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. All right, this is the longest commandment out of the 10, and we're gonna look at three observations directly from those verses. The first is at the beginning. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then in verse 14, it says, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. The word holy here means set apart, that it is different or special than the rest of the days of the week. And before we get into how it's different, it's important to note that it is a day unto the Lord. Obeying this command is like an offering. The Lord also commanded his people to offer the first fruits of their harvest, unblemished livestock, the best of their oil and wine. He even had them offer their firstborn children, in a sense, by consecrating and redeeming them. And now he's asking for an offering of time. How do these repetitive offerings form the hearts of the people? What is God trying to teach them? In every one of these scenarios, God is teaching his people that he owns it all and he gives to them freely as he chooses. Therefore, he has every right to appropriate our use and enjoyment of his blessings. And by offering the first and the best back to him, we're acknowledging these things, that he owns it all and of his generosity, but we're also showing that we trust his provision for tomorrow. And so in light of that, I ask you, how do you view your time? Do you clench it with an iron fist? Feel like it's always being taken away from you, it's slipping away, you never have enough? Or do you see it as owned by God given by God, and that we are only stewards of it. The second observation is how to observe the Sabbath. And we're not given a long list of rules. We're simply told six days you labor, the seventh day you rest. The Hebrew word for Sabbath literally means to cease. And did you notice that the Sabbath applies to everyone, not just the social elite? Honoring the Sabbath is not just ceasing from your own work, but making provision so that others in your community can rest as well. And think of how revolutionary this was. Not only did the Israelites have a God commanding them to rest, which of the pagan nations can say that? But he's commanding a societal rest, no exceptions. Yahweh's people 
We're not to be the type of society where the rich get richer by exploiting the poor. All people, even the ox and the donkey, were to rest on the seventh day. And the inference here is that we need it. Jesus himself said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Ceasing from our labors is to acknowledge that we are not God. Jen Wilkin writes, our patterns of work and rest reveal what we believe to be true about God and ourselves. God alone requires no limits on his activity. To rest is to acknowledge that we humans are limited by design. We are created for rest just as surely as we are created for labor. An inability or an unwillingness to cease from our labors is a confession of unbelief, an admission that we view ourselves as creator and sustainer of our own universes. It's in him all things hold together. Are you living in belief of that truth or do you feel like it's up to you? And our final observation is the commandment ends with a call to remember, to remember. Interestingly, when God gave this command at Mount Sinai, he rooted it in creation, that we're supposed to model the way he acted during creation. But in Deuteronomy, he roots the command in their deliverance from slavery, which parallels our deliverance from sin. So what are we to remember? We are to remember who God is and who we are in relation to him. He is the rightful owner of all things. We are only stewards. He is the giver of all good gifts, and we humbly receive, not earn. He's the provider. We can trust him to meet our needs. He's the limitless creator, and we are his limited creatures. He's the sustainer. We are dependent upon him, and he is our salvation. We will be lost without his mercy. Sabbath rest is God-centered rest. It is meant to reorient us to these glorious truths so that we can let God be God and we can live within his good design. Do you have a weekly rhythm of this type of rest? You looked at two passages in Deuteronomy as extensions of the Sabbath. The first commanded the release of bondservants and debtors every seven years. And we asked, what did the people need to believe about God in order to obey? Well, it's what we just talked about. They needed to believe that he provided all things in the first place and that by relinquishing their rights, they were proving that they were trusting him to provide for tomorrow. The other passage in your homework was on the three feasts of pilgrimage. So in addition to the Sabbath, but in the same heart, these feasts were rhythms built into their calendar to cease from work and to feast before the Lord. Again, think of how revolutionary in the ancient Near Eastern world. While the pagan gods demanded constant striving, Yahweh says, rest from your labors? Come and feast at my table. These feasts had the same Sabbath purposes, to form and reorient their hearts to God. 
but they also point forward to a time when Christ would say, come to me and find rest for your souls. Come to my table, eat of this bread, drink of this cup. Christ labored for our rest. No more striving to earn God's favor. We can have complete security and confidence in him. And so may these rhythms of Sabbath rest and the Lord's Supper, which is our feast now, remind you of the greater feast to come when we will rest before the Lord, finally the way it was meant to be. And finally, commandment number 10. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Were you wondering how this connects to the Sabbath? Maybe you still are. We'll get there, but let's start at the beginning. To covet in this negative sense is to eagerly desire something that's off limits. In other words, we are to understand the limits of our own rights and not violate the rights of others. And here's the thing. No one knows the desires of your heart unless you act on them. This is the only invisible commandment in relation to others. You could be accused of dishonoring your elders, of murdering, adultery, stealing, defaming someone, but nobody can see covetousness. Yet covetous desire is the root of sin. Think about it. Doesn't all sin against God or another human begin with desiring something that is off limits? Number five, coveting authority that is not yours will birth the sin of dishonoring your elders. Number six, coveting vengeance will birth murder. Number seven, coveting someone's relationship or spouse will birth adultery. Number eight, coveting someone's possessions will birth stealing. Number nine, coveting vengeance or status will birth false testimony. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do you understand the power of your sinful desires? And do you understand that you are not stuck with them? Sanctification is not just getting better at saying no to sin. It's actually a substantive change in the desires of our heart, our affections. And you know how this happens? It's when a new affection moves into our heart, one that is birthed by the Spirit, one that is so big and paradigm shifting that it just begins to crowd out all of those lesser spiritual or sinful desires that are still present. There's much less room for covetous desire in a heart that desires Christ above all else. The Apostle Paul learned this lesson when he says in Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. He's not talking about great accomplishments for the kingdom. He's talking about learning to be content regardless of his circumstance. And this is the same guy who said in the chapter before, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
It's a coincidence? I think not. You might be able to rationalize your self-content every now and then, but it won't last. The only way to be truly content in your life circumstance, relationship, work, whatever it may be, is to first be satisfied by him alone. What is contentment but rest in God's character and provision? It sounds like Sabbath of the heart. And when we honor his right over our lives, we are freed up to honor the rights of others. But to love others well, we must first love and delight in God. So what covetous desires do you see in your own heart? It might be material things, relationships, social status, but maybe it's something even deeper, like coveting someone else's health or happiness in an area of your life where God has ordained a season of struggle, suffering. Consider your inputs. What are you feeding your heart and your mind that are fueling those covetous desires? What do you need to cut off in this war against sin? And conversely, if the power to expel these desires is actually a new and greater desire for Christ, have you asked the Spirit for that? What can you feed your heart and your mind that will reorient you to his goodness? If coveting is to distrust God's character and provision, contentment is to rest and to trust him. The last time I taught, I told you that the law reveals the character of God. And we've sure seen that today. But I also said it's like a mirror in which we see our own sin. And so what will you do in response? I invite you to take God at his word. That when we confess our sins, meaning admitting to his reality, he is faithful and just He will forgive us our sins in Christ Jesus and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The Spirit enables a kind of obedience that wasn't possible under the old covenant. But this God who has created and redeemed you will continue his good work, painful though it may be, until the day when every last bit of sin has been cut from our hearts. Lord, haste the day. Let's pray. God, we come to you humbly. I don't think there's a single person in this room, if we were to be honest with ourselves, that we have a leg to stand on right now. Our sin is deep, but your grace runs deeper. And so we thank you for the gift of your law, of your word that reveals your character and shows us our sin. And we praise you and thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, that we are secure in his righteousness 
and that we can work this out in the power of the Spirit, being cleansed, being renewed day by day until we see you one day face to face. God, may we not grow weary in this fight. May we be ruthless to destroy the sin that we see, turning to you quickly in our time of need. We thank you and praise you for your sufficiency, that you are more than enough for any of the sin that we find deep within us. We love you and we praise you for the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.